I have to be delusional enough to think people are going to listen to this. It's thunderstorming outside. There's lightning. Hit me with it. Come on. How smart can you be when you have huge mantids? Okay, he, him. Go put your pronouns and go sit in the corner. I'll take care of this. It's just common sense. Why, hello there, Mr. CEO. How are you doing today? Good. How are you, commoner? I'm doing great. I'm excited. I'm pumped. I'm back from a month of traveling, so I have no plans to get on a plane anytime soon and excited to record again. Yeah, I'm happy you uh, let me come on. I hear <laughs> I hear good things. So how would you describe your niche? And without doxing, perhaps, where does the CEO title come from? I started this account basically to help people maximize their W-2. Everybody's working on their Wi-Fi money. I get it. People do want to climb the corporate ladder. I'm just here to help to get people to where they want to go. And I chose the CEO uh, handle just because it offered me greater scope, I think, to help people. I was actually never a CEO, by the way, never a CEO, but I was a CFO uh, in a prior life for about four years. Uh, but CFO, it's kind of boring. It's accounting based, <laughs> finance based, right? I just didn't want to talk about finance stuff all day. So that's why I chose the CEO handle. Right. I think it's great branding. And I totally agree that maxing out your nine to five should be priority number one. Um, Wi-Fi money guy, even though his name is Wi-Fi money guy, said the exact same thing, which is very fascinating. But I also think for people who are just trying to get ahead, it's better to streamline the process and say, step one, do the best you can from a salary position. And then step two, once you've got that running, once you're doing well, okay, dive into starting something on the side. So, well, I guess my first question is, what was it like being a CFO? You said you didn't like it. Uh, I don't really enjoy accounting personally, so I can see why that might not be the best. It, it wasn't bad. It really was the situation overall. I mean, I, I became CFO relatively early in my career. I didn't expect to get it. Um, the situation sort of presented itself. The health system I worked at at the time, we were sort of trying to build the plane in the air so to speak. So there was just a lot of moving parts and we had a lot of uh, leadership turnover in other areas. So I had to take on more responsibilities I probably shouldn't be doing. Like I shouldn't be overseeing supply chain. That's more of like a COO kind mm -hmm. of thing. You know what I mean? So there was just a lot put on my plate at the time. And, you know, with a growing family and everything, I found a better gig like right before COVID happened right before the pandemic hit. And uh, it was just, it, it was, it just kind of fell into my lap. And working at a, a middle sized health system, you don't get the same type of exposure to talent that you do in Fortune 500. Mm. Um, so it's just a different experience. Uh, I'm glad I did it. Uh, I might go back to it at some point, but wasn't the time to, to stay. My understanding is that a lot of times CFOs are called in when the business is in dire straits. So there's just a lot of turnover as a CFO jumping from business to business, not because you're a bad CFO, but because you get called in, the ship is sinking. Yes and no. I think it really depends on the company. Like the company, when I was, when I was CFO, we were a growing health system at the time. When I got the role, it was just mergers and acquisitions grow, 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 grow. The situation was right for me. You probably would never 
pick a CFO who, or who had experience doing hospital finances where they were doing well or things were mature. You, mm. In a growing company, you have to pick an executive leadership that meets that vision over a long time horizon, right? So the other situation that presented itself, we had a new CEO as well. He was only there maybe a year or two. And one of his strategies was to keep people that were there to sort of bridge the gap and build trust with the uh, with the company overall. And he came from a rival health system, so he was already looked at kind of as kind of an outsider, so to speak. So it was the right situation at the time. This is very cool for me because I don't have a lot of interaction with C-suite level people and getting to talk to them one-on-one -on -one like this as someone early in their career. So this is a great networking opportunity for me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> with that in mind, there are a lot of people in the jungle that will be listening to this who I think fall into two categories, people earlier in their career or people that are looking to make a switch. Knowing that we're amid a recession and things are tightening up a lot, where do you think most people should be focusing their efforts? Should they be trying to entrench themselves as much as possible in their company or should they really be focusing on job search, updating the resume and all those things? You should be doing all of that. If you're always networking, if you're always an, an, uh, a good performer, if you're always got your resume updated, you'll never have a problem. If you're financially stable, you make sure you have six months to a year's worth of you know uh, cash on hand to make sure you can cover all your expenses and things like that. You'll, you'll never uh, be worried about a recession. You'll always be prepared. How far ahead are you thinking or do you recommend that, for instance, someone young in their career should be thinking? So three years ahead, I should know what my next step is, for instance. You should have an idea, but if there's an opportunity where you can better your situation, depending on your goals, you should take it. When I was CFO, I, I didn't think I was going to leave. At least if I did, I would go to another hospital and become a CFO. Now I'm back in Fortune 500. Uh, the role I'm in now was actually a demotion in title, but I got an increase in pay. My incentive package is, is great. And my scope is a little smaller and I can maintain a better balance. That's one of the reasons why I started working on this Twitter account because I have everything pretty much down. You know what I mean? Like I can, mm -hmm. I can autopilot some of that uh, on my nine to five, which gives me more time to work on Wi-Fi money. So it was just a better situation. And I would recommend that to anybody. You got to take the opportunities as they come and you got to pivot. So just be prepared at all times. Never be in love with your job. I think that's very fair. One of the things that I was thinking about recently and in preparation for this discussion was how employees and employers have a united cause in delivering whatever the business delivers. But at the same time, there's a friction because the employee wants to work as little as possible to achieve that goal for their salary, whereas the employer wants to harvest as much value from that person as possible for that set salary. So though you have a united cause, you're actually in opposition to each other. And I never really got that until I started working. <laughs> what, does, who, what do you mean by employer? You mean your direct leadership, right? Yeah, because but even just the business itself, like now that I have 
a better understanding of people like Bowtie Jester and Wi-Fi Money Guy who literally run empires on their own, I understand that I don't want to be in a position where I'm exchanging money for time as much as possible. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's one of the reasons I'm trying to grow this as well. I mean, if I can get into more consulting, I mean, I know people who have their own consulting firm and it's very specific to a particular industry and they make bank. I mean, they're doing really well, but they had to grow that over time. So I might as well start now, right? (laughs) It's not going to happen overnight, but you got to grow it. Well, I think you're one of the more unique cases because you actually have serious experience in the real world too. There are a lot of people who give business networking resume advice that are 22. Like I'm actually was a CFO. This is what I would want to see on a resume. Like that's a much more interesting value add to me (laughs) as someone potentially purchasing such courses and info products. Yeah. And I know, I know individuals who have their own business and they're just part-time CFOs. Like uh, I remember we had a hospital that we acquired when I was CFO and we would have regional VPs of finance and we had turnover in one of them. And we wanted to bring someone in who was going to be a long-term hire over a two to three year time horizon, but we needed somebody to basically steer the ship for like 12 months. So we found somebody, he literally just does like 12 month CFO gigs. Wow. That's it. And he just gets paid for that. He goes up and down like the East coast and that's all he does. All like just 12 months at a time, he runs a ship until they can hire somebody. That's it. That's wild. I know. Kind of a great gig though. Very exciting. What is the day in a life of a CFO look like? Meetings. Okay. (laughs) Basically just meetings all day. Meetings all day. And it really depends on your scope too, right? But in the time of the year, when it's almost, when it's year end, you're an audit. You're just dealing with audit documentation the entire time. Like, dealing with the auditors, uh, helping to put together the financial statements, that kind of thing. You're in close all the time every month and you have forecast and budgeting. Um, if there's anything, any big project, like putting in a new EMR, we did that at, at the old health system I worked at putting in a new ERP. You have to meet with consultants all the time. It's, it's busy. It's definitely busy without a doubt. Uh, this is just becoming a, a question from Commodore Hour, but What's the normal track to becoming a CFO of a, a giant hospital, as you said? Do you be, are you an accounting major and then you work at Deloitte? Like, I don't know exactly how you get there. Everybody's different. Healthcare is different because they really like you to have the standard course of action, which is you do audit for a few years with big four, right? You have your CPA, then you just... You, you have all of the experience you need within that industry. You take different finance roles and you move up the corporate ladder and become a CFO. It's a little different in Fortune 500 right now, I would say. It's leaning more towards what the long-term vision is of the company. Mm-hmm. So if you look at like Alphabet, like 10 years ago, generally speaking, you hire people who are CPAs, right? They're good at basically audit, maintaining socks. Mm-hmm. financial responsibility, but they hired somebody out of investment banking because they wanted funding. They wanted a mm. different vision. So it really, it really depends now on the vision of the company. I would say 10 years ago, even 15 years ago, it was, you have big four experience, you're in an industry, you have your CPA, eventually you'll be a CFO. 
Now it's a little different. They're moving away from that. Fascinating. Very fascinating. Because I have a lot of friends who are doing the big four route right now, and they can't imagine really doing it their entire life. So good to know that there's expansion on the horizon for them. After four years, you better either go go into industry or pick partner track. Either way, it's it, it really depends on what, what company and industry you're in. Yeah. What's your take on business school? Is it worth it? Not worth it? Waste of time? I think it is for the networking, but get it cheap. Don't pay for it. I got I got my MBA paid for by my employer. It was it was an easy decision. Yeah. Uh, but if you can get it for free, I would do it. Anything less than five grand is probably probably worth it. And I know some execs. Uh, I worked with a uh, head of supply chain where he had an MBA from the University of Phoenix, and they hired him. I was like, really? <laughs> I was yeah, I was stunned. I was like, he came highly recommended. Uh, and at the time, there weren't really great candidates, but do you really consider that like a legit school? I mm-hmm. I, guess I don't really, but mm-hmm. he had it and we hired him. So it counted for something, I guess. That's really interesting because my company, we do the thing where they send you, but you owe them the years that you were there, but you can only go till the top seven, basically. They won't let you go to University of Phoenix, which why would you if they're paying for it, right? But it's solely to make friends. I was talking to my assigned mentor and she was hounding me to take the GMAT, get ready, get my applications going. And I was like, I don't know if I really want to. I just, it is a long time where you're not making money. I don't know how valuable the experience is from an educational standpoint. And she goes, it's like two years of being retired in the middle of your career. <laughs> yeah. Especially if you're doing it full time, right? Like, yeah, I, I know Wharton. Wharton does, they make you go full-time. Yeah. I mean, there's no choice. You have to go full-time. Who wants to do that? Nobody wants to do that. <laughs> I want to <laughs> earn some money, right? That's, I guess that's where Wi-Fi money comes in. Cause if you have something built already, right, you can still go to, but if you have it, if you already have Wi-Fi money, why would you even need to go? You have that backup plan. I don't know. It's like what comes first, a chicken or the egg, but, mm-hmm. um, well, what do you do now? Are you trying, are you trying to go to business school? I'm, coming up to one year out of college. So I would go if I went along my company track in two years. I'm one of those consultants everybody hates. I don't really see the ROI for me personally, especially with just the timeline of the career. I'd come out of business school, get two more years to my company and I'm 30. And that's the most brutal time at this firm because there's a big promotion point and I want to be having kiddos. So it just doesn't really make sense for me personally, I don't think. What industry are you interested in working? I have no really concern. I'm not married to it. Anything. I'm open. I mean, I love cryptocurrency and Web3, but they have serious private equity into those sectors a lot of times, but not a lot of pure cases come through. My career has basically been like healthcare, retail, a lot of mature companies already. So I never mm. had to go that route. That's a, that's a different ball game, right? That's totally different. I even, I even see some like just the financials around like a SaaS company mm-hmm. is a little foreign to me because it's relatively new, right? And some of the gap policies have even changed because of it, right? So that's that's like specialty where I mm. come from. Do you think running a mature company financially, it's just completely different? 
the things you care about, your priorities. So the life of a CFO would differ so substantially between, as you just said, a SaaS company and a very mature company. Absolutely. Without a doubt. It's a different knowledge level. I think it's a different energy level that you need to bring because SaaS companies are generally on the younger side, right? You know, if you look at C-suite, they're around mid fifties, right? They're only there probably three to five years. And you just need somebody to come in and kind of steer the ship, depending on what they are. There's no big like upheaval in the industry. What do you really need to do? Mm -hmm. Just make sure everything's profitable, make sure the street's happy, make sure investors are happy. And that's it for fortune 500 in healthcare. It's a little different because they only have upheaval. They're slow for everything, right? Mm -hmm. Technology change. They're just slow. If you're ahead of the curve in healthcare, you're going to be there for 50 years. Easy. Um, But there's not a lot of upheaval. The biggest thing in healthcare over the last 20 years was Obamacare. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, that threw a wrench and everything. Everyone had to, everyone had to basically engage in M and A. It was kill or be killed, and it's still kind of that way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so each industry has has its nuances. Did you select healthcare, or did you end up there and stay there? And if you did select, why? I ended up there because I actually wanted to get my master's for free. I knew they would <laughs> offer for free. And at the Fortune 500, I was at beforehand. There, they were not financially stable, um, but they actually had a reimbursement policy for going back to school that was, it's, they had it, but like nobody would take it. I think it was like for every credit they paid for, you owed three years of service. Mm-hmm. So, so think mm. about that. In a 30-credit master's program, you you never pay that off. You would die basically you pay that off. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I lost my train of thought when you said that because it was so crazy. I know. Eventually they changed it. And then that's the reason why I ended up at 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 the time it was just a hospital and then it grew. But that's why I ended up in healthcare and then realized it was so specific and nuanced and you had to think about things very, very differently than you could with like manufacturing or retail or um, like CPG. Like it was, mm. it was just totally different. It was very, like you had to have very specific knowledge in order to be good at it. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, the fortune 500 I went to that I'm at now is healthcare adjacent, but has some other things. It's, it's pretty large. So it's not just healthcare. So I, I get to uh, have a different scope, but you still have to know a lot about it in order to perform. I was reading a book about the Koch brothers and their company. And the biggest takeaway I got from it was how private companies are so much more maneuverable than public companies because they don't have to report their earnings every quarter. They can think on a much longer time horizon. They can make investments that seem a little crazy in the moment. And that is a huge asset to the people running the company that a lot of times get overlooked because you can go public and make a crap ton of money. So Charles Koch in 1980 turned down $20 billion or something crazy, maybe maybe 200 million, big number, because he didn't want to go public for that exact reason. And now he's worth God knows how much, but fascinating. That book was a very fair assessment of them. It was called... Cokeland, 
it's hard to be super pro Coke brother, I think, but it was very fair. And as a free market capitalist myself, I can understand a lot of their rationale to an extent, but some of the things they'd make their workers do were insane. So they'd basically have each of their refineries compete against each other in a race to the bottom for how fast you could work, how many carts you could move, and they would record it. And so the life of the worker from the 1980s to the 2015, whenever this was written, just fell off a cliff because they started competing against themselves, essentially. And they did that within every enterprise that was under the Koch brother name. So when you look at that, it's hard to be a free market capitalist. That's the most efficient way to do things. But is there a line to protect the worker at some point? I don't know. Hey, competition breeds excellence. And when you say land, I don't think of the Koch brothers. I think of like uh, white lines and shit. So, <laughs> fair. You know, like, what book are you reading? Like, what are you? <laughs> My dad gave it to me, and he said, "Read it." So, yeah. Okay, interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. Okay, right now we're networking <laughs> anonymously, <laughs> but typically, I love to network. If you know me, I love to network. I think networking is, of course, necessary. They send you to business school to do it, as we've just said. I don't live for it. I'm not gung-ho about the happy hours. There's just no way to avoid it though. Networking though, don't look at it that way. Networking is at, at its very basic level is just talking to people and finding common ground and common things that you like. Don't even worry about the business side. I always try to network with people. And when I say network, it's basically just talking to people, right? Mm. And it can be anybody. I always like to network with the admins and the janitors because they give me physical access and they can give me access to people because you get introduced to new things. You get introduced to people who can not only help you, but then you can help them. I try to network. If you look at it from, um, from like a hierarchy perspective, you can network up Mm -hmm. that helps, but networking down because when I go to hire somebody, I hate using my internal recruiting because they don't recruit. They're just basically Mm. shuffling resumes. That's all they do. I mean, they take in a resume, they filter it for me if I want them to. And then they kind of act as an agent to just tell them the price I want to put on the person (laughs) when I'm hiring them. That's it. But if I network, I already know who I want for the job. It speeds up the recruiting process, makes the recruiters' lives easier. Then they're happy. I get them, you know, off my back. And it's less time to train people. the men it's just easier overall so network not only benefits you to advance you but also help you in other ways and you can help others you know if i reach out to someone internally and say hey i have a job open i think you'd be great for it they're going to take that to heart they're going to look at that as a positive thing mm-hmm. now now they're a part of my network and they're going to probably embrace loyalty so you can't just think of it as trying to advance your own career it's advancing in other ways. I just think I have a bad connotation of the word networking. I associate it with schmoozing for exactly what you described as talking to people for purely my own self-advancement. But when you describe it as quid pro quo, I help you, you help me, everybody wins. I, I like that a bit better. And also just being nice to the people you work with, I think is probably the right move <laughs> for other reasons as well. You said that you often network going downwards as well. What are some of the qualities of people below you that make you want to hire them? Probably somebody who is no bullshit. 
-hmm. someone who's very direct. If I know that you are a good performer and you just get things done, uh, that's somebody I want on my team. You know, from a finance perspective, there's always deadlines to me, right? I don't want to be late. I want to be fast and accurate. I want to be expeditious is the word I like to use because Mm -hmm. it's a combination of fast and accurate, right? If I can have people on my team like that, that's the people I want because they're just going to get things done. Everybody's in meetings all the time. We're always talking about bullshit. You know, half the time we schedule a meeting, you come into a meeting and people are already are talking about, you know, what the weather's like and what I did this weekend and blah, 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 blah. At some point you got to get things done, right? You can't just sit on your ass all day. So that's the type of person I, I would hire. I completely relate to that from a downward perspective in that my big piece of feedback from this past project I was on was that I was too abrupt in the meetings. So I would say, Hey, how you doing? Awesome. Can we do X, Y, and Z today? They wanted me to ask the questions about how was your weekend? And remember, they told me, remember, I write things down about people, what they said last time. And a lot of times we work with clients. So I understand it's a little bit of a different scenario, but they want the five to 10 minutes of the hour to be bullshitting. And I said, if I'm in six meetings, that's an hour of man hours, not just for me, but also my manager and the client. That seems inefficient, but I get it. I get it. It bothers me though. It is inefficient. I agree with you, but because you're client facing, you, you got to fake it. You got to fake it. You got to keep the client happy. That's, that's just the way it is. After you build a rapport though, I was just talking to somebody about this. It's funny. After you build a rapport though, you start to get down to business and most people don't want to, like most mm-hmm. people are like, afraid to engage in it. If you engage in it and do it, then it's over. Then you can go fuck off. <laughs> you know, right? then you, once it's done, it's done. Then you can move on and wait for the next fire drill to pop up. Right? So yeah. I don't get it. Why put, I just don't understand putting it off when you can get it done now. That's so true, especially for me as the monkey at the bottom of the rung. Like I would rather know the six things that are in the pipeline for this week and I can get ahead if I have a spare second rather than it getting dumped at night. That's the worst thing about my job is that at 5 p.m., that's when I find out how late my night's going to be. I have no idea. Welcome to the party. That's how it usually is. I try to avoid that with my staff, though. I always try to avoid that with my staff. Every Friday, I always tell my staff, there's a standing, there's a standing like time to just leave like 2 PM on a Friday. If you're still on your email, I'm going to tell you to get off. Like, mm-hmm. just go. There's nothing, there's nothing that important. And if it is that important, I'll just handle it. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people at my level and above are older and they hate technology. They just, <laughs> even just, even just like trying to set up a meeting or using like teams or zoom, they're like afraid of it. I don't get it. That's one of the reasons why I, that's one of the reasons I left uh, my CFO role because I was dealing with old people. It was just, they wanted to be in office. I found a gig that could be fully remote and everybody was, everybody was good with that because most of us are remote for the most part. And I, I just don't understand that mindset. I mean, it can make your life easy and they just, they just don't want to embrace it. Yeah, that would not fly at my company. I don't know how anyone would be able to do that. Okay, so you talked about networking and hiring people. Have you interviewed many people throughout your career? Oh, yeah, quite okay. a few. Some interesting interviews, too. Okay, tell um, me all about them. So the, the most interesting interview 
it wasn't necessarily good or bad was I took a, a, a interview with uh, a health system down south. I'm in the northeast and I took a, an interview down south. And before I did, I told my wife, I was like, if we're going to move, like, I got to know who the people I'm working with. Like, mm-hmm. I just have to know. And I have a lot of friends who are state police. So they hooked me up with a PI. And I actually hired a PI to investigate, light investigation, I say this, light investigation, as to who I'd be reporting to. And this was a CFO at the time. So it would have been for like a VP role. And the things that came back were alarming, (laughs) were very, very (laughs) alarming. I won't say what they were, but they were enough for me to not want to take the job but I didn't want to like let on that I knew this or anything like that I didn't want anything to seem suspicious so I went to the interview I flew down went to the interview the guy interviewed with you never know that he was into some of the things that he was into (laughs) and it was the whole time I'm just like I'm not taking this job and he, he does not seem like the type of person to be into some of this stuff right so it, it was that was the most interesting thing because I knew the whole time what he was like outside of work, outside of his job, and it was just a weird feeling. I'd never had that before. But one of the worst interviews I was ever on was a lunch interview, and I post about lunch interviews, like eating interviews, all the time. There was somebody who ordered like it was it was like a hamburger, but it had like an egg on it. It was like one of the runniest eggs. It had yolk coming out of it. And the yolk, when he was eating it, and he was talking to me while he was eating, right? And it, his mouth was full. It was disgusting. <laughs> the yolk, I actually watched this happen. The yolk came out, like oozed out as he took a bite, right? He puts it down, doesn't even clean his hands or anything. His hands are filthy. He's And he's just plowing through this hamburger, right? He takes French fries and dips it in the yolk on the plate. And I'm like, this... I was just trying not to laugh the entire time. I'm sitting there with my salmon and broccoli, right? And it it was just the weirdest thing. I wasn't even listening. At that point, I was just like, I'm not, I don't even know what he said. I wasn't even asking questions. I think I just watched him eat for like 20 minutes after that. It was so weird. But that's a good way. That's a good way to spot crazy. That's a good way to spot people there. If they're a little, if they're a little off is to take them to an interview where you eat. Because if they're very formal about it and they at least keep up appearances, you know that it, it at least they're not crazy enough to do that in public, right? At least they're not crazy enough to do that in the interview. I have never had a lunch or eating interview, really. So now I'm going to be very cognizant of what I order if it ever does come up. One of the nope. things they instructed us very carefully about was portraying yourself at the client site is so important. And even your dress code, it needs to match the client. So if the client has a financial services company, you have to wear a full suit. If you're at a metalworking factory, you need to wear something a lot more casual. And there was a problem where a girl wore her $10,000 watch to the client site because she came from a wealthy family. And there was like this big hubbub hoodoo or whatever. So there's definitely an issue of portraying yourself in front of people, not only in the interview, but when you go on the job, and appearances are really important. That's absolutely right. I mean, anytime you have client facing, you always have to be thinking of the client first. 
Um, I have plenty of friends who did audit, who did big four consulting, and they say the exact same thing. Um, you know, some of the stories I hear, especially about external auditors and how they're treated, like I always think whenever they roll in, they're like the Gestapo looking to like hunt me down. It's mm-hmm. really I like get a bad feeling about external mm-hmm. auditors all the time. Like I know they're there to like help, but are they really? I don't know. I just always get a vibe, but um, we always put them in these shitty audit rooms that were literally designated audit rooms and i think most of the time they had boxes it was like storage and i don't know how they worked in there it was it, it was probably one of the most uncomfortable things i had to watch i would walk into the audit room and you know there's these like first year associates and they're like crammed into these little desks it was basically like a toddler desk and they had their laptops and everything the, i think their computer was bigger than the desk i felt bad for them but hey <laughs> you got to do for the client yeah well i guess we just talked about interviews what do you think about resumes how essential is it that your resume stands out is it just a resume pull do you ever go back to it what are some of the biggest problems you see on resumes the biggest problem i on resumes is people try to get fancy (laughs) i don't i don't need any i don't i don't need fancy resumes with like pictures and graphics and shit like that like just pictures yeah oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah pictures of what themselves oh wow a picture of themselves on it like on the left hand side they'll have like a column and they'll have like a picture of themselves and then they'll have like the personals and then they'll have like their credentials from like um you know what the university they went to what degrees they have they'll have their um like technical skills and then they'll give their work history right that's the biggest thing i see the other thing i see is that people will not reach out to me like i i post if i have a job i'll post it on linkedin and say i'm hiring like mm-hmm. they just won't reach out to me but yet they'll apply to the job on an internal website I, and the other thing is I look at resumes. I don't ask talent acquisition to filter any mm. because I don't, I'm not going to get that many. I might get maybe like 20 to 30, depending on the position I'm hiring for, but you can spot a shitty resume pretty quickly. I've had some where the font size was like eight, like <laughs> six, eight. <laughs> you can't even read it. I was like, if I can't even read it, like how, how am I even going to hire this person if I don't even know what they're doing? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen I've seen some resumes like that. I've seen resumes where they went like four pages. What? Like a four page and they only had like five years of work history. <laughs> and I'm just baffled. Like five years of work history on four pages. Like I know I know physicians who have been working for like 30, 40 years and their CV is like a page and a half. It's it's baffling some of the things that they put on there i see like i see things that aren't even like related to to their work at all so i see like eagle scout if you don't have a lot of work history like if you're like two three years out of school maybe or if you're like an intern that looks okay but 15 years of work history i don't i don't care about your extracurricular like i don't care if you're like an eagle scout i don't care about any of that stuff but yet it's on your resume you know what i mean yeah Um, yeah uh, and I think I always try to test people a little bit on what their technical skills are just to see, like if we use like S4 or Oracle and they actually have it on there, I'll say, well, okay, well, 
walk me through a journal entry just to see if they've actually done it. And if they say something like, well, it's been like two or three years, I might have to brush up. At least they, at least they tell me that, at least they're honest about it. Right. It sets some credibility to, so to speak. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We had, um, when I was in school resume workshops and all, we had so much production around getting your first job, which is very helpful. And I appreciate it, but also it was something to behold. And they had me put a line about my interests and hobbies. And I thought, why does anyone care if I play soccer and tennis? But they told me to put it on there. But I, I agree with you. I was like, are we really going to talk about this? We mentioned the technical experience question. My dad interviews sometimes. And he remember this one guy who was saying he was a very high up level engineer who had years and years of experience in this one very specific thing. And so he said, oh, you're an expert in XYZ. Tell me what it is. And the guy could not even put it into one sentence what this thing was. And they had 30 people on the Zoom call hiring this person and he just crumbled. Like, you can't lie on something so blatant. At an engineering company, you're going to say you know how to do something or you're an expert in it and you can't even describe it. Truly people, baffling. People are brazen. I always I actually tell people if if you've never done it, if you've never done it at all, but you can speak to it, put it on your resume. So I went the opposite way. Like there was there was a job uh, I applied for early in my career, and they were using a specific like data analytics tool. I don't I couldn't remember what it was, um, but I put it on my resume, and I I all I did was I Googled it, and I looked at like YouTube tutorials on how to use it, and I'm like this is easy. This is similar to other things I've used. So I put it on there. I mean, nobody ever asked about it. Right. Yeah. But it's one of the things that got me an interview because yeah. I had that skill set. Um, but if, if it's on your resume, regardless of if you've done it or not, you got to do it. Yeah. If you're, if you're not able to, you got to get it off. So what's the line on lying and not lying on resumes? If you can speak to it, put it on your resume. <laughs> okay. The thing you mentioned about the length of four and a half pages, I wonder about that as well. Applying to my next job, like, should I just have my one job listed on here? How far back do I go now? I'm officially a career woman, but what do you care? It's going to be two lines long. There's got to be other stuff that you've done. You can probably, you can probably fluff that a little bit there's gotta be some fluff that you have go to bowtie resumes as well if yeah. you really want to he, he's very very good um he's he's done some uh he, he's a bit of a miracle worker with some of the ones that i've seen him seen him go through so, um, <laughs> I, something i have to start thinking about otherwise i'm gonna have to do private equity like everybody else so we'll see what happens um, you could switch you, you could switch consultancies you could switch consultancy and get a new get a new project if I was going to be in consulting I'm fine with staying in my job I just want something that's a little bit more predictable is how I would describe it it's just not what I want long term um gotcha and travel I don't want to do the travel I hate traveling believe me that's one of the reasons why I did remote why I tried to find a, uh, a company that was really good with remote work mm. um even I still don't travel with remote work and we have people all over the country I mean, it's, it's, I'm surprised. I'm very surprised. And I'm surprised so many people are going, are, are so many leaders are putting people back into office. Like leaders have to look at working from the office differently now. 
right? You have, I guarantee if you don't, if you own the building, you're going to have to depreciate it or you have to pay rent, right? Mm -hmm. I get, but it should be looked at as an employee benefit. Now, if you want to go into the office, we have that for you. There's a benefit. It should be looked at as getting medical. It should be looked at as getting debt. <laughs> That's how it should be looked at now because times have changed. And the excuse of, well, we don't like, or, or people are not as productive when they're away from the office is total bullshit. It really just depends. It comes down to, I, I think it comes down to individuals not being able to manage people remotely. Mm. Uh, and maybe I'm a little biased because I've been very financed based my entire career. So if you don't meet a deadline and it's not accurate, those are the two biggest things that I judge you on, mm -hmm. right? That's what it comes down to. But if somebody is, you know, has to be very creative, I could see why you would need to be in the office, right? But it's very job specific. But if someone comes to me and says, well, you know, to post these journal entries, you have to be in the office. Yeah, that's total bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. It doesn't have to be that way. I think it's a really interesting question because Goldman Sachs has come out and said they're going to be an in-person, in-office company. I have to think that's a talent nightmare going forward where you have a smart freshman in college who could either be an investment banker and work until 3 a.m. in New York City in the office, or he could become a software engineer and work at Google remotely that is a long-term problem for them, right? I totally agree. It's, they have to think about, they have to sell it, right? They have to sell being in office. Like what's the benefit? And I, I did see that, I think it was Goldman CEO who came out and said, there's like two kinds of paths. There's the career path, which is in office. You have the ability to network, right? And I, I would agree when it comes to networking in the, sense of moving up the corporate ladder and doing that kind of networking it's so much easier in person mm -hmm. right i'm a better interview in person i network better in person networking remotely is kind of weird and awkward yes it's just a little yes. weird and awkward um not to say it can't be done but you've really got to be good at it to, to make it not seem weird and awkward it's so much easier in person so i get his point there but once you've been in your career for I don't know, maybe even five years, I feel like you know what you're doing to some extent. Maybe some people are slower learners than others and depending on the industry, but once you get to a certain point, you don't need to be in the office. You just don't. And it really depends on what you do as well. Um, you can network in other ways like we just kind of talked about, but you know, in that regard for younger people, they have to sell that to them. If they can't sell that to them, they're going to, they're going to go the Google route. Like you just described, right? I mean, totally. it's no brainer. Yeah. And even hybrid, you still have to live in the city. That's one of the main reasons why remote is so popular is I can live in a cheaper area and still make decent money. Whereas I have to live in New York city, for instance, even if it's a hybrid company, um, I would say that two meetings per week are very helpful to be in person, brainstorming, thinking, whiteboarding, as we say. But other than that, Excel, PowerPoint, I can be done completely isolated. So I don't know. I would prefer to be fully remote because I have other uses of my time that 
the worst thing for me is when I'm in the office and I have nothing to do because I can think of seven things I could be doing with that time and it drives me up the wall. Like it really bothers me. I will do laps around the office. I'll hide in the bathroom. <laughs> and then I come home from the office at 6.30 p.m. and I have work, but I didn't at 2 p.m. <laughs> so Because there was no work at that time. I absolutely agree. Yeah, and when and when you start to, when you start to, you know, think about having children and that kind of thing. It's so much easier with kids to be remote. Yeah. Um, it, it just saves so much time. You get so much more done. Um, before I went remote, I remember even just little things like um, trying to get chores done, just trying yep. to get basic things done. If you're not outsourcing that and you're doing it yourself, uh, doing it remotely is so much easier. It's, it just is. You don't have to wait for the weekend and have your weekend just be slammed with getting everything done that is outside of work done right you can just during the day remotely hell you can even be on a call and I could just go get you know 30 minutes of zone two cardio in right Mm -hmm. I mean you can but Mm -hmm. that's 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 a perk that's a perk people need to think about and it's going to come back it 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 definitely will come back I don't don't see how it completely leaves more people are going to have to adopt it um but I think there's also different factors as to why leadership is trying to bring people back. Uh, I heard somewhere that the cities where they have a large workforce who were remote, they want them back because the economy of that city is kind of drying up mm. and they need to rejuvenate the economy again, right? Um, some of the HR departments I hear can't handle all the payroll tax and all the admin stuff. Oh, multiple, multiple, um, being in multiple states. It's just a, a, an administrative nightmare. If you don't have that down and you don't hire people who know how to do that. Now, granted, it's, you know, in the grand scheme of things, the ROI on that is probably not worth saying, hey, we can't hire remotely, but it's still an obstacle. It's still an obstacle for a small company. And in healthcare, again, that's one of the reasons why I left my CFO world where they wanted everybody to come back into the office. Wasn't the main reason, but it definitely played a part. Um, they just didn't see things that way. Most hospitals and healthcare are like that. They want people in person yeah. all the time. Yeah. And I was like, there's a surgeon literally on a Zoom call while he's like ripping out someone's gallbladder, like sucking it out. But yet I have to be in person for this meeting. I don't get it. <laughs> that happened at a given time. Yeah. It was, it was a very interesting call. Yeah. Surgeon was uh, right before surgery. He was like, oh yeah, I can handle this call. It was, it was for like capital. He wanted capital for something or something like that. And while he was in there, he had a nurse hold a phone up and he was talking to us while he was, while he was sucking out someone's gallbladder. <laughs> I was like, I hope Joint Commission doesn't come in here. While this is happening. <laughs> I feel like that phone's going to fall into that, but it was laparoscopic, so it probably wouldn't fall. In, but you, you get my point. Oh my god, is it true that surgeons are assholes? Because that is the stereotype that I know. Not all surgeons. I wouldn't yeah. say all surgeons like that. I was, we were, I was talking to somebody about this. I think it was like Bowtie Gray. I think we were talking about that, and uh, ladyologist about who the worst the most egotistical docs are. And I narrowed it down to neurosurgeons mm. and orthodox because mm. 
neurosurgeons, I've never met a neurosurgeon who wasn't like a high roller. They mm-hmm. were always dressed to the nine because they only have like one surgery a week. Yes. Depending on what hospital it is, right? So they come in for like one day of surgery. They have like a day of consult and then they just hang out the rest of the week, right? They don't really have to be on call that often because it's neurosurgery. <laughs> different because every orthodoc I've ever met always wants to be the team physician of a sports team. Oh, every single one. And where I was operating, we were affiliated with a pretty big football school in the Northeast. So it was easy to get orthodox to come in Mm because they basically free tickets to every home game. Right. It was, Mm -hmm. it was a big incentive. Um, But I wouldn't say all surgeons are like that. General surgeons are addicts. They live in the hospital. They live in the OR. It's crazy. Well, they just love it. They they don't go home. They will post a cot right outside the OR and just sleep and wait for surgery. Some of them. It's it's interesting the mind of some of the surgeons. I've always thought emergency room had to be wild. Obviously, some of the things I hear. I thought I heard it all, but some of the things I hear about some of the people that come into the ER with some of the things that they've done to them themselves or other people is just so weird it's just uh, it's just what goes through the mind of someone who does some of the things that they do it's just I don't get it but yeah there's there's definitely some and then people go into the ER for nothing like oh I have chest pain well do you think it's just heartburn like do you think it's the wings that you had two hours ago (laughs) maybe but I'm going to wait five hours and find out, you know, it's, it's very odd. <laughs> uh, I just have to ask because my dad had to get a serious surgery done and he had to go to a neurosurgeon. And he said, the guy was exactly as you described with the high roller. He only did surgery on Wednesdays and it was impossible to get him to see him. But my dad said, I felt so confident. This guy's going to literally cut my neck open and I'm, I'm not worried. He's got it. You have to be really smart to be a neurosurgeon. I yeah. will say that. You you have to be. You have to be confident to be a surgeon overall. I don't want someone in there who is going to freak out the moment they see my, you know, uh, my chest cracked open, right? I don't want that. Right. I don't want anyone to crack under pressure. And when they talk about it, it's very interesting because they're so calm. Most of them are very, very calm. Oh, yeah, I do this all the time. It's not a big deal. Like, you know, just think about open heart surgery. Open heart surgery is one of the craziest things. Oh my God. They put you on a heart lung machine. You basically aren't even alive, but you're alive. And then they operate on you. Like some of that stuff is crazy to me. Um, But I remember someone invited me to watch because we were, I was at a teaching hospital and they were like, yeah, do you want to come watch this open heart surgery I'm doing? And I'm like, no, I absolutely (laughs) do not want to watch that at all. I just, I just had like my fourth meal the day. I don't want that. No, thank you. So have you learned just so much about healthcare? You're in with the doctors and there's so many things that we don't know from the outsider's perspective. I would say so. Yeah, that's cool. I, I remember there was one time they had, uh, I used to work out with someone who was a, uh, um, a neuro he was like a neuro research doc and he was like you want to come get a brain test i was like what the hell are you talking about (laughs) like so they put you put like one of those like 
old school like helmets on you where they have like cords oh coming my out. God. Of the top. And it was like, yeah, for 50 bucks, we'll just test your brain. <laughs> I was like, what is that? <laughs> so I got 50 bucks to test my brain. And I was like, you know, I'll just, I'll just use it to spend on the staff or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it was just odd. You had access to some of the stuff. Um, you know, most people, most people think about certain things like they see it on, you know, TV. Some of it's like that, but some of it's not even close. Some of it's not even close. I don't know. There's just a lot of random stuff with healthcare, even down to like the hospitals. Like the hospital that I originally started at was like bomb proof. Like, what? yeah, like the way they built it, it was basically bomb proof. Like it was almost like a bunker, the way it was described to me. And the head of facilities was ex military. And the way he was going about it, he was like so proud of it. Were they expecting trouble to be coming to the hospital? Uh, where I was located, maybe like 20, 30 years before. Oh, wow. There, there was, it, it was, it was, it was near, uh, somewhere where it could have been bad. Wow. <laughs> it could have been bad. Yeah. Um, the way, uh, the, the geographically where it was situated. Healthcare is one of the industries, uh, in my line of work where people are scared of it. They, they're like, oh, here comes a healthcare case. Um, but some people absolutely love it. You just have, it's so specific. It's yeah. very, very specific. It doesn't translate well into other industries. It's very complicated. The insurance thing is very confusing. It's not. <laughs> it's not. To, I'll simplify it. Insurance companies want you to pay the premiums and not go to the hospital or the doctor at all. That's That's exactly what they want. It gets complicated when insurance companies also own hospitals or when health systems also have an arm that is an insurance agency, like an HMO. Yeah. One hand kind of washes the other. So here's, here's an interesting thing. Your primary care physician, if you have one, if they're owned by a health system, they want to prescribe you as many meds as possible, but they also want to refer you to the hospital because that's where the money is made. All physicians clinics just a primary care, they all lose money because you can't scale the docs. Huh. They would get so burned out if they even tried to break even. That's most physician practices if they're not private. Private can kind of get away with it. If you're under a health system, it doesn't work. If you're an insurance company who owns a physician's practice, they want you to not go to the hospital at all because they don't want to pay for you to go into the hospital and get surgery because that's where the big money they have to pay out is. So it's literally the same thing, but depending on who owns them, wants you to do different things. If they're owned by a health system, we want you to be a feeder system into the health, into the hospital to get a knee surgery, to get, um, you know, infusion, anything like that. But if the insurance company owns the physician practice, they want you to like, just go home. <laughs> <laughs> here's your meds, go home, go rest. It's very, very interesting. That was the clearest explanation I've had. That makes a crap ton of sense. And what are we doing here? Big pharma. I want to talk about it. Doctors prescribing, pharmaceutical reps. Tell me everything. In a health system, they're pretty much outlawed at this point. Like in order to get a rep in, you have to be scheduled. You can't just pop in. They won't even allow you to take incentives anymore if you're in a health system. If you're private, like if you're just a three-provider three practice, 
they will do whatever they want. They can come in, they can take incentives, all that. But there's more oversight if you're in a health system. Um, big Pharma is going to do its job. I mean, they're going to try to get you on meds and they're going to try to get you on meds as quickly as possible. Like, look at Coumadin. It's a blood thinner. They give it to people generally if they have AFib, like if they have AFib mm -hmm. with their heart. So it's an irregular heartbeat. If you have this irregular heartbeat and you need to be on a blood thinner, not only do you have to be on a blood thinner for the meds, they're pretty cheap though, because they've been around since like the 50s. But then you have to go to a Coumadin clinic to get blood tested to make sure you have the right dosage so you don't bleed out. <laughs> <laughs> so not only do you have to pay for the meds but then you have to pay to go to the clinic to get tested to make sure everything's okay and then if you do bleed out then you probably have to go to the er so it's basically a cash cow having diabetes is the best thing for a hospital people love hospitals love diabetics because they're the gift that keeps on giving do they love all chronic diseases then? All of it, because it leads to other stuff. Like if you have type 2 diabetes, you're probably going to have eyesight issues. So now I get to put you in ophthalmology, right? I'm already going to put you on meds. You're going to see your PCP. You're going to go to ophthalmology. You're going to have nerve issues with diabetic neuropathy. So now you're going to go to neurology, right? If you get a cut on your leg, it's not going to heal quick. You're going to heal really slow. It might not even heal at all. In which case you got to go to wound care and you might get an infection. So now I got to go to surgery because I got to take your leg off. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's just a snowball effect and it's all because it starts with obesity at the end of the day, I'm getting on my, I'm getting on my high horse about healthcare, but at the end of the day, it starts with obesity. If, if we didn't have as much obesity as we do in the U S most of the hospital services, I would probably say half aren't going to be needed. Like if you look at cardio, if you look, yeah, I would say half. Like if you look at cardio, like cardiovascular, you're always going to need to have the plumbing fixed somehow, right? There's always going to be something that if you have like um, a bicuspid valve that needs replaced, it might be genetic. I get it. But if you have like, um, was it heart failure? It's probably because you're obese. I, I don't know how else to... Yeah. Really say it. Yeah. Obesity just leads to all these. You're preaching to the choir. Don't worry about it. I yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I've I've heard I've heard I've heard the podcast. <laughs> but if you look at like the U.S., if you take if you take Switzerland, Switzerland is probably one of the most optimal healthcare systems in the world. And the only reason why I say that is because they pay their docs really well, and they have a generally healthy population, right? If you look at how they compare to the U.S. for spending, they're number two in the world. Wow. They, they spend almost a very, very close amount to what the U.S. spends, right? They pay their docs very similar. They're number two. We, we, the U.S. pays their docs the most because we have a lot of specialists too. The Swiss are right there. But if you look at how healthy we are compared to the Swiss, it's leaps and bounds different. Mm. There's a huge divide. And one of the biggest reasons obesity right the u.s is over overwhelming number one in obesity the swiss aren't that obese and yet we pay the same to our docs we have very similar spend and we aren't as healthy doesn't make sense but it's obesity mm-hmm
Okay, I have to ask, and you don't need to answer if this is a weird question, but if you are a CFO or a head financial guy at a health system, and we've already discussed how chronic diseases are very profitable to your company, or do we have adverse incentives here as a potential patient that wants to be healthy? Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. It's not even a question because- how do, how do you have a profitable hospital? It comes down to two things. Profitable hospitals come down to high volumes. And the only way you're going to get high volumes is if people are sick, right? You don't need a hospital if people aren't sick. What do I need a hospital for if everyone's healthy? For the most part, right? Just holistically. Mm-hmm. And then it comes down to payer mix. That's another one. Payer mix is what kind of insurance your patient population has. If you have a lot of private and Medicare, you're probably going to be profitable. But if you have a lot of Medicaid, you're probably not. So in the health system I was in, we had our main flagship hospital, which was in a good county. It had a high Medicare population, high private insurance. Did really well. One county over, it was in a high Medicaid area. Reimbursement was terrible. Mm. They barely broke even. Go to any hospital in New York State. They have a high Medicaid population. They're lucky to break even. That's just how it is. So if you want to deliver healthcare to people with Medicaid, how do you make the hospitals profitable? Like the government sees this. It wants to intervene as it does. Is there anything that they could do to improve that? Or is that just the fact that it's Medicaid itself? You'd you'd have to drive up taxes. I, I don't see any other way. You'd have to you'd have to put it on the public somehow, which I don't think is a good way to go. And you'd have to incentivize companies to want to buy less profitable hospitals with high Medicaid population. Yeah. It, overall, it does offset maybe like your your tax, the tax amount that you have to pay. It might it might ease that a little bit. But why would you bra- buy an unprofitable company? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless you know you can turn it around. Um, one thing you could do from a strategic perspective is if you wanted to introduce, like if an insurance company wanted to buy a hospital that had a high Medicaid population, but you knew you could offer the private insurance in that county um, to a large company that could use that hospital that way you're kind of like paying yourself Mm. you could do that um i've seen that a lot there there was a competitive um health system where they had a high population through their insurance arm in this one particular county i can't remember where it was but what they did was is that once they reached a patient population they were comfortable with using their insurance they bought the hospital there. So then they said, okay, come to our hospital. You'll basically pay nothing. And you're, we're basically paying ourselves, right? So we can basically set what the margin is. We can pay ourselves more, we can pay ourselves less, but the premiums don't change for the, for the, for the patients. From the announcer's perspective, this is just wild. I had no idea that the insurance companies were buying the hospitals. Maybe I'm completely uninformed, but that seems counterintuitive to me. It's not. It's not wow. at all. If you look at like, look at uh, Kaiser Permanente. They, they are a large 
health system out in the West Coast, but they also own some hospitals, I believe, in North Carolina. They have about 20 million members in, in their insurance, through their insurance arm. Um, there's some other ones that aren't as large, like large regional ones who have this as well. Um, but they own hospitals. Insurance companies own hospitals. Then you have the hospitals who have like an HMO. There's a lot. There's a lot of them. That. Wow. As a free market capitalist, as I've said, the Medicaid issue is bothersome to me, but I don't know how to deliver better healthcare to those people. And that's the, the crux of the problem. You don't want people to die of cancer because they're poor, but also you can't ask a hospital company to run a hospital that doesn't make money. There's, there has to be some incentive to buy it. Right. I mean, the one thing you could do is you could make it county based. You can make it a county based hospital, which I wouldn't recommend because it then just puts more strain on the taxpayers. Um, and eventually the county will want to offload it anyway. They're not going to want to deal with it. It's a pain. Um, the other thing you can do is they could treat it the way that psych is kind of handled there in some states what they do is they will ask large hospital systems to fund psych specific hospitals you remember those old like psych hospitals that used to exist they don't mm -hmm. really exist anymore it was just a lot it was just specific for those types of patients they are starting to bring those back and the, they're trying to go to the government some of these health systems to lobby to say look we can take care of this underserved population, but you're going to have to like do something for us. You're going to have to give us tax breaks. Mm. You're going to have to give us uh, incentives from a reimbursement perspective for Medicaid. You're going to have to, you're going to have to help us out somehow. So that's kind of coming in for psych. They could do the same for Medicaid. Um, but I mean, Medicaid patients just don't help. Generally you lose money on them. Yeah. I like that solution though. That makes more sense to me. What are the types of medical professions that are more lucrative for the doctors? I thought it was dermatologists. Yeah. I mean, derm, I wouldn't say derm makes a lot of money. I would say the more complex specialties, like the health system I worked at the most, the highest paid person in the health system was the chair of neurosurgery, I made mean, more than mm -hmm. the CEO. Wow. Because it's just, it's highly specialized, highly complex, um, and also depends on how tenured they are and how old they are too, I guess, to some extent. But um, dermatology, you make more private. I don't think you make as much as a health system. Like if you're a part of a health system, you're not going to make as much because hmm. they're going to they're going to go up against ben benchmarks, and you know they have to be there's there's more red tape, right? surgeons you would make a lot I, I i think i said this to somebody the other day if i was going to do it i would be an ortho hand and foot surgeon hmm. because with that type of surgery it's not emergent most of the times so you don't have to be on call you can then go into sports medicine to some extent hmm. um and you get to sit down when you do the surgery <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> would you say that going to medical school from a pure financial perspective is positive ROI. Only if you're gonna, the, the best case scenario is if you work in the US or Switzerland. Like if you look at, if you look at physician salaries across the board in any other country, it's not worth it. 
Also, if you can get somebody to pay for it, yeah, it's mm-hmm. definitely to some extent. Um, but I would ask a doc. I mean, there's tons of other bow ties you probably know mm-hmm. who can say for sure. But if I was going to do it all over again, I, I don't know. Cyber's got a pretty good roadmap. I'll tell you what. <laughs> You don't, even, you don't even need a bachelor's degree for that. I mean, that's, that's interesting. And I mean, some of the things, some of the things you can do in that sector, especially in healthcare, that's big money. I yeah. Mean, that's like a black box to people. Nobody, nobody really knows outside of the people who actually know how to do it. Right. I mean, talk about cybersecurity to some boomer exec. They will lose their mind. They will just, as soon as they hear Splunk, They'll just they'll be like, what? What, is, what are you talking about? Like, I, no, they'll just turn their brains off. I think it's an admirable thing to do and you get to work with people all day long. So that's cool. But a lot of years, a lot of years. I'd like to know, um, what's the dream for your account? To grow it out as much as possible and help as many people as I can mm-hmm. and do it at the beginning of when we were talking to maximize their, their W-2. Uh, you know, I'm at a point where I'm, I can be on autopilot and still work on my, my Wi-Fi money. Uh, and I think a lot of people can get to that point before they eventually, you know, leave the corporate life completely. But until that time, you, you might as well get the most out of it. Treat it as another revenue stream. For me, given my account, I don't know if I'll ever completely leave it to some extent because I still have to stay in touch with things. Things change all the time, right? So. Mm. And it, it's coming to a point now where I'm just good at it. I just want to treat it as another revenue stream. It's hard mm-hmm. for me to give it up when I know it's pretty much going to be there for the most part. So um, that's that's a dream for the account. Hopefully get more clients so I can start billing more. Right. I'll be an actual consultant. <laughs> um, does your work stress you out? Your main nine to five? Uh, at certain times, but... I've been doing this for 15 years. Like it's, I'm at a point now where it, it's just new circumstances. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to hire good people. If I hire good people, that helps out a lot. But yeah, it used to stress me out more when I was CFO. But now, now it, it's it's easier because my scope is less. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not being asked to do as much, and I don't I don't have to go outside of my scope because the resources are better. Mm-hmm. That's one thing I. I'm looking for in the next gig is just less, not stress per se, but go, 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 which is good. And it's fun and it's exciting, but I'm not receiving the benefit of it, <laughs> of all that kind of chaos. So I'm a very simple person though. As long as I can get, as long as I can hit my macros and get a workout in and see my kids and my family and my wife, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. As long as I can get to that point, I'm good. Like, I just don't, I just don't need I don't need a lot. That's, that's my downtime. I'm used to it though. I mean, I'm, I'm up 4am trying to get everything done that I need to get done. So, you know, there has to be at least some routine in there in order to accomplish everything I want to accomplish in a day. Right. Right. Just working on Wi-Fi money and trying to grow my account and learning from so many awesome people in the jungle. I feel as though the, the carrots that they give you in the corporate world are worth so much less than the value that you're adding. Obviously that's the job of the corporation. Um, and so I want to be in it for as little as possible because the only way 
to get out of the rat race, as Mr. Bowtie Bull would say, would be to get that multiple or the expansion on your labor. And I can't do that here. No, I totally agree. I, I completely get it. What do you do with this account? Are you trying to, are you going to try to do it through YouTube mostly? Is that where you're going to try to get the, the bulk of uh, your revenue from? Yeah. So the goal is to start selling more products through the YouTube account. I love the podcast. Like I very much enjoy talking to people. I learned so much from doing this and it's not taxing whatsoever. Um, making the other types of videos I've made in the past that is pretty taxing but the only people who are finding this via Spotify are from the jungle, are from Twitter. I can just tell by the numbers. But when I post it on YouTube, only 10% of those views come from Twitter. Everything else is my YouTube subscribers or uh, random people on YouTube. So the, the method for growing the podcast is growing my YouTube account, which requires those videos, basically, because people aren't looking for a podcast with two anonymous people right now. But they would perhaps find my random funny video and then click on a podcast afterwards. Have you tried reaching out to other people who are more high profile, who have more of a social footprint? That is the next step, I think. And I'm going to try to do it through jungle adjacent accounts. So I have a couple in mind. Unfortunately, a lot of them don't have DMs open. So I can't even DM them. I would have to tweet broadly or I would try to use an account that I know in the jungle and say, hey, I've seen you interact with this person. Do you know them? Et cetera, et cetera. In other words, network <laughs> to get some larger guests. There yeah. But yeah, definitely the next the next goal too. I'll keep an ear out. <laughs> awesome. I'm trying to I'm I'm trying to help a few other people too. Like they, they've reached out to me just to be like a board member on some things as oh, well cool. as like trying to get signed, trying to get some jobs. So I'll see if anybody wants to do it. I'll see Pretty if awesome. anybody wants to do it. If they're high profile and I'll see if they, if they bite. Yeah, that would be, that'd be awesome. Send them my way. I'll, I'll talk to anybody. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time for coming on today. This was a blast and a very unique discussion that I was not anticipating, to be honest. I'm ready for round two, commoner. Yeah. No. I a CFO of a healthcare system. Who knew? Super fun. Where would you like to direct people now to find more of your stuff? Uh, Twitter for now. Just come mm -hmm. to my Twitter account, Bowtie Chad CEO, uh, and you can see more of my content there. More to come. Awesome. Have a good one. Thanks, Commoner. Thank you so much for listening. This has been yet another episode of Common Sense. If you liked the conversation, please consider hitting that follow button on Spotify. Oh, and tell everyone you've ever met to do the same. And while you're feeling generous, why not subscribe to my YouTube channel? I promise I've ridiculed at least one of the identity groups you dislike. You have a great day now.